0: To actually be present takes a lot of work. I've fought with everything I had to try to be present for my godchildren, even in this tiny, tiny, tiny little window that I have. Because, you know, por lo menos, you're asked to play one little position in this game called family. You should at least play it well. Play it with some gusto. You know, play it with some dedication. And I figured I'm never going to be a father. I can't show anything there. So I'll show my talent in my little corner I can show. Hi,
1: welcome to The Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. My guest today is Pulitzer Prize-winning author Juno Diaz, author of The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao, This Is How You Lose Her, Drown, and most recently, Island Born, his first children's book. We're such big fans of Juno Diaz over at Fatherly that we chose to break our father's only rule for the podcast. Juno is the first non-dad that we've ever interviewed. He is, however, the godfather of many, or as he calls it, Padrino. Our conversation covered a lot of topics from his own father to why he will never be a father himself and his regrets and relief about that to how to write literature for adults and children which give them the space to participate juno diaz is famous for his voice as it comes through his literature but actually having a conversation with him you see that voice come to life he utters beautifully formed sentences that you let roll on by and only later you realize her profundity. It's one of my favorite conversations I've ever gotten to have on the podcast or not. I really enjoyed it. I hope you will too. Stay tuned.
2: Welcome to the Folly Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy this So.
1: Well, Juno, I want to maybe congratulate you on being the first non-father on the Fatherly Podcast. All right. We're breaking all the rules for you. Damn, all right. How do you think you'll be as
0: a father in three words? Pushover. (laughs) Weak. (laughs) Yeah, weak pushover. That'll do it. As a godfather, I'm the weakest pushover, so I imagine it'll
1: continue. Describe your father in three words.
0: Ooh. um, Sadistic brutal, and militarized. Did he serve in the military? Yeah, and he served in the military, in the Dominican military, and took that with him for the rest of his life.
1: Obviously, sadistic, militarized, and brutal hmm. are not the most positive ways of describing a person. Do you think that at all contributes to why you aren't a dad?
0: I have no doubts about that. I think my mother's always wondering why don't you have any kids? And I look at my mother, we're five children. And both of my sisters have children and none of my brothers have children. You could not have picked three brothers so unalike. Um, And all of us struggled with uh, having a lot of girlfriends. So it wasn't as if there was some... Lack of opportunity. Yeah. uh, You know, like we were like coasting or anything. I think, you know, there's certain kinds of people that... uh, really alter your vision towards family and even your vision towards trust inside of intimacy. And my dad did a perfect number on his sons in a way that he wasn't able to kind of completely get inside my sister's heads.
1: You didn't know your dad, is this correct? Your dad wasn't around for a large chunk of- First six years. First six years, because he was in the States Mm. and you were in uh, the Dominican Republic. Yeah. And then you settled in Jersey, as is famously chronicled in many
0: of your... I don't know famously, but it is chronicled. Semi-famously? No, I would just say chronicled, yeah. It's chronicled. Well, let me just ask,
1: what did you read as a kid? You're here because you're great, and we want to talk to you. Also, because you have a children's book called Island Born, which just came out. But what kind of stuff were you reading as a kid from a children's literature standpoint, that stuck out to you, if anything?
0: A lot. I mean, again, I don't have a lot of experience with picture books, which is great. I'm neither a parent nor read a lot of picture books when I was young. By the time I learned English, the picture book phase was over. Mm-hmm. I kind of missed that entire part of my life. I started reading, you know, what young readers were reading. And, uh, and I was actually compensated for my terrible speaking of English. Uh, It took me a very long time to actually speak English. The fact that I'm quote-unquote so fluent in English uh, still makes me laugh when I considered um, the origins of my English. And so I was reading things like A Watership Down Yeah, book had an enormous impact. And then, of course, my library, this is in Jersey in the 70s, still had a lot of old books that I don't think you always find these days in public library system. So we had everything Enid Blyton wrote, that beloved British writer. I was reading Enid Blyton, which is like kind of what people were doing in the 60s. But here I was reading it, had an enormous impact on me. There was, you know, all these kind of kids' books that you get really kind of obsessed with. Anybody who was leaving home and going on an adventure, I was all about that. There's something in literature, children's literature,
1: that just echoes with kids in a way that I don't think that they don't think to themselves. I identify with that character. It's not that explicit. It's just sort of this deep mystic resonance. Like, I grew up reading um, Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. And just the idea of Max kind of wanting to leave the island you know, with the wild things and kind of being in power, but not really being in power and missing the people he loved. I didn't know it at the time. I had to look back at it and think, oh, man, that was what I was going through.
0: That's sophisticated, very sophisticated.
1: You're a godfather. And an, who are you a godfather to?
0: Um, I can break them down. My two oldest goddaughters, Camila and Dahlia, they're Dominicans from the Bronx. Their father, Radame, their mother, Sandra, I um, organized with for many, many years up in Washington Heights. My goddaughters, my Ono, she's Japanese-Taiwanese, my best friend's daughter. Twins, Mateo and India. You know, and then I have godchildren. What's really kind of sad is that um I have, like— a godson who I never see. Right. So I I almost even though I'm the godfather, that's my one kind of big failure as a godfather. You know, I don't see Sebastian enough to even really claim it. Where is he? Yo, that's the scary part. He lives right outside of Boston. Right. I actually see my Japanese goddaughter more than I see my outside of boston godson
1: what does being a godfather mean for you as a quasi-parental relationship
0: you know people take it with different levels of seriousness as a tradition a godparent was the person who took care of your kids when you got obliterated yeah they were literally formalized aloe parents And this was important in the kind of Catholic tradition and it's because the Caribbean and Latin America, it's really, really important. Children need somebody to kind of make sure that there's a, a kind of a backup. Reading Oscar
1: La Inca, the way that family kind of functions to rescue other family because there was so much obliteration of the family units.
0: Oh, yeah, man. You needed redundancy. Yeah, Godparents are like kind of an excellent cultural, social redundancy. And so... Depending on the friend, I have different expectations.
1: Right. It's like a car wash. It's like what kind of level, mm. what level of godfather you get.
0: Yeah. Most of my friends are pretty damn serious that they expect me, if anything happens, to put their damn kids through private school. That's a given. Yeah. You know, so in some ways it can just be kind of a ceremonial role. In other ways, it could be really profound responsibility. I, for the most part, take it as a profound responsibility.
1: The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Every kid's got an imagination all their own. Whether they're racing monster trucks, playing teacher, or dreaming of setting foot on Mars, even the wildest imaginations are hungry for more. Feed your kid's appetite for adventure with Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. With perfectly crunchy breadsticks and creamy cheese, it's a crunchable, dippable, enjoy-however-you-wantable snack that's always a favorite. Plus, it's made to go anywhere their imagination takes them. Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Snack like you.
0: And now back to the show. What do your godkids call you? A lot of terrible things. (laughs) Again, most of them call me tío or uncle. Mm -hmm. The ones who speak Spanish will call me padrino, which is godfather, which is incredibly funny. When you're called padrino, you just start laughing because the padrinos I knew were... They were godfathers for real. I always feel like I'm play acting still. (laughs) What has been the moment you've been most proud of as a godfather and why? The invitation to any Aloe parent is absence, to not be present. There's always a temptation for you not to be there. There's always a temptation for you to make excuses of why you can't go to the game, why you can't go to this event, uh, why this year you can't make that trip to Japan. I've actually avoided that pretty consistently. I
1: feel the same way as a father as well. Mm. There is a smaller kind of area where you can step out, but it is very easy to make excuses, to stay at work that extra hour, to go out. And life rolls on. Oh, yeah. Your kids grow up, but they're not going to grow up knowing you as well.
0: No, I I see it. I mean, I see it all my friends who are actual fathers, that disassociation, man. You know, being present doesn't mean, as you all know, this is the world. You know that being present doesn't mean you're present. To actually be present takes a lot of work. And uh, I've fought with everything I had to try to be present for my godchildren, even in this tiny, tiny, tiny little window that I have. Because, you know, por lo menos, you're asked to play one little position in this game called family. You should at least play it well, play it with some gusto you know, play it with some dedication. And I figured I'm never going to be a father. I can't show anything there. So I'll show my talent in my little corner I can show. Do you think you're never going to be a dad? Yeah, I think I'm never going to be a dad. Yeah. I feel uncomfortable
1: asking, but do you regret that? Or have you come to peace with it? Or how do you relate to that?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think what I regret is having the father I had, but I'd never lived the life where I had children. So I don't know what to compare it to. And I'm involved in a community where you spend a lot of time with children. I think what's weird about kind of gringo life is that, you know, not all gringos, not all white folks, not all Americans, but I think they're much more atomized, it seems to me. They have to call each other to tell that they're coming over or they make dates. You know, that shit don't fly in Dominican culture. The idea that... Somebody would call you before they come over. It's absurd. My partner, she's Chinese American. Let me tell you, she went through a cultural shock when she realized that anyone could knock at my door at any hour and not only would be welcome, but we were going to make food for them. And <laughs> that wasn't just an abstraction. She saw it the first week we were dating. We had at two in the morning. The doorbell rang and she was like, what the hell? Don't answer it. I'm like, don't answer it. That's probably my friends and family, and exactly who it was. There she is in a bathrobe, you know, trying to put tea out. Uh, And that's true also with children. You spend a lot of time with children.
1: And intergenerationally, not just with children, but also (laughs) with the generations above.
0: Yeah. And so I guess my thing was, it's not as if I don't have a lot of contact with children and that I don't ask myself this question all the time. I think if you're a person who doesn't see children at all or rarely, it's far easier to not think about it. But I'm telling you, if I'm not here every day, I'm surrounded by kids um, who are related to me. And I'm sitting here thinking, my God, am I doing the right thing every day? So I feel like I've rectified myself to it. I'm not sure. You never are sure. My partner doesn't want any kids. Um, She's about to turn 40. I assume that's not going to have any other partners. One always assumes I and mean, so we'll never know but right now it seems to be that's where it's gonna go yeah i think um as
1: a dad myself i have two kids achilles and augie they're four and six great names joe one of the things when i first became a dad it was the biggest challenge for me was to not just reenact the trauma that i felt as a kid on my own kids you yeah know? i think what you said resonates your dad fucked you up so much you didn't think that you could be a good dad I felt the same way. And it's been this long journey. <laughs> you know, they're not that old, but it feels like a long time of trying to figure out what my limits are yeah, and what my boundaries as a person are. Who am I? And can I be more than what I have been? And, you know,
0: everyone has their resources and they've got like different fuel tanks. I mean, for me, I think one of the things that also kind of made it clear was this idea of being present for young people, this idea of really being here. For those of us who suffer from mental illness, that creates another question. I mean, I enter into depressive episodes that last for years. And I often tell myself, my God, am I glad that I didn't have a child who would have went from year one to year three without a father. Mm -hmm. Absence, they say, is not as terrible as neglect in the psychological literature, The damage that that would have done, because, you know, any of us who goes through these episodes, especially profound episodes, know that you're not there in any way that makes any sense. And so, you know, maybe this is just me justifying it to myself. But when I look back at my life, even the last 20 years, there are more holes than there are presences. And there's a part of me that's like, for whatever said and done, the one thing I haven't done in these last 20 years is fuck the kid up, which I would most certainly have had if they'd been around. What heirloom did your father give to you, if any? My father, when he left, he left us with a bunch of firearms. I was one of those families where if you broke into the house, you would better come with a SWAT team. I grew up shooting guns. I grew up on the rifle range every weekend. With
1: other Dominicans or like a broad swath of Jersey gun no, culture? No, I was in New
0: Jersey. It was gun culture. Yeah. That was like the whitest shit I'd ever seen. Yeah. That gun was my dad's race. That was his race. I mean, he believed in guns the way, you know, like helicopter parents believe in checking in. Yeah. Yeah. So he left us with a bunch of firearms and, um, he left us with, uh, 22 that I particularly, uh took a shine to, probably not for the best of reasons, but whatever.
1: I grew up in Philadelphia, but Mm. um, my stepdad, he was a gun nut. Yeah, he was totally. My dad was a gun nut. Yeah. He was Japanese American. And we used to go to the range and there would be such a crazy cross section of like his rural PA. So like white supremacists, basically him, this Japanese dude, like a couple of black guys, maybe sometimes. And you could tell they didn't like each other. No. But still, everyone was loaded to the teeth. So it was this very, like, polite dance of, you know, picking up your casings and, like, very—it uh, was a really bizarre scene
2: to Yeah, be around.
0: You know, I felt it as a kid. I went to the rifle range, and I'm like, yo, I would feel safer over by the targets than I feel would half these white dudes. Yeah. Because they're looking at us like, yo, and they were happy to mutter the N-word to us. They're lucky my dad didn't hear it because— uh, I had the kind of dad who had no problem going to prison forever. And that's not the greatest thing to be worried about when you're a kid. No, You know, and in some places it's improved a lot. I um, could talk to you all about this, but most of my friends have no idea that I spent any time with guns. I talk about it as much as someone talks about the fact that their family used to belong to an apocalyptic cult. Yeah. You know, unless you're getting paid for it, you keep your mouth shut. Every now and then, though, some friends will say, hey, um, you know, let's go shooting guns. And then they discover that I actually shot for a while, you know, and, and things have improved in certain places. Certainly in New Jersey, it's a lot more diverse than it used to be. Yeah. You know, I went shooting in New Jersey and I'm like, oh, this does not look like what it was with my childhood.
1: Describe the dad special for dinner, but now we're saying the Juno Diaz, the Diaz special for dinner. Yeah,
0: the Godfather special. The Godfather the
1: Padrino special. Yeah,
0: man. No, because I I get you know, again, yo, like once your friends figure out in a deep way that you're not gonna abuse their child and that you will fight to the death for them, once they figure out you're a real aloe parent, all sorts of straight stuff starts happening. You know, one of them is make sure these damn kids get something to eat. So my problem is, is I can't cook for shit. (laughs) The other thing, though, that I have an advantage is, is that uh, I'm one of the reason that food culture has gone to shit. is because all of us are foodies now. You know, I'm one of these people who always knows where there's a good restaurant to feed some kids at. Yeah. So my godchildren are always happy if I'm the one taking them out to the meal because they know they're going to they're gonna eat like wild, fun shit. What kind of stuff do you... Well, you were talking earlier, you know, I'm a Dominican, I'm a Caribbean, person of African descent. Uh, I love all my Caribbean food. The big treat usually for my godchildren will be like Jamaican food because from the Spanish to the English, Caribbean, it's like a nice... For them, it feels mad exotic. Yeah. Again, a lot of my Dominican godchildren weren't raised with Japanese food till... I became their godfather, and now they're all big Japanese food fans because I have this connection to Japan. Th- these girls in the Bronx, they were... The Bronx! For them, eating out was eating Italian. On Arthur Avenue. Or yeah, that. man. I was like, yo, we're going to go get Japanese food downtown. It was like, I wouldn't want to put too much on it, but certainly Japanese food is the top food. And Ethiopian food. Yeah. I'm a big Ethiopian food fan, so it allows me to take all sides to Ethiopian food. My goddaughters will talk endlessly about where they first ate Ethiopia and how they learned about it. And same goes for the rest of them. So those are my things. I tend to try to cross train them in diet so that when they grow up, we can all eat together. Yeah. Are you religious? Well, you're a godfather. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's in your name. The thing was, is I was raised in the syncretized, hybridized, Africanized Catholicism of the Caribbean. Like no question. There's no Pope that's going to show up to my family and not see wild african paganism written all over our altars, our ancestor worship, the the sort of the ways that we celebrated the calendar, you mm-hmm. know. That still abides in me. My numinous relations to my ancestors has never left me no matter how far away I've come from catholicism. Uh, no matter how the sort of kind of the empirical world has gripped me over the religious. And uh, there's no question that my older godchildren are very aware that this model that I present of having a powerful relations with my ancestors, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, very much uh, part of the Caribbean African religious traditions. What's funny is that my Japanese goddaughter already has this built in to her Buddhism. So the overlap there, or to say the the dissonance there is non-existent. Right. Oh, it also made me think, I, I was in uh, Philadelphia for the weekend
1: alone, and this book, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, kept me wonderful company. And it kept me company because it's not just one story. It's like uh, you have a whole family that you open that book in, and you have all the ancestors, and you have just such a rich life. Everywhere I went with that book, people would come and talk to me about it. I'd be eating alone and someone would be like, that's my favorite book. And they'd come sit down. And it's like all of a sudden I had friends. So thank you for (laughs) making me not lonely for a weekend.
0: That's very kind.
1: So I first read Island Born before I read this, right? Sure. One of the things that I've found so interesting about Island Born is just like you did in your books for adults, you don't overly explain things and make it explicit. It's kind of like the reader me, the kid, whoever, has to go on a journey to discover it for themselves. In Island Born, obviously, it's with Lola and the monster, and there's no reveal. Like, this is actually Trujillo. Like, you have to do that on your own. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that approach that you take in your adult literature translated into Island Born?
0: I mean, ultimately, my central strategy or kind of an important Aesthetic philosophy is that reading is collaboration. We understand this, but one has to think of it in some ways more technically. Lots of things have to happen for a book to work well. But one of the most important realms that a writer has to kind of account for and has to, you know, make sure that they shape correctly is how much room is there in the book for the reader to participate. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons books go completely crap. Is because they're either too little room for you to participate or there's too much room for your participation. So you feel like you've been abandoned. You feel like you don't understand the rules. You don't feel like there's somebody there who's playing with you. You know, and somebody just throws a balled up piece of paper to you and says, play. Versus when somebody comes and say, "Hey, listen, I know this game. It's like this, but you can change the rules and modify the game in a way that makes it pleasing and satisfying." Right. And so I think that that's always been my game plan. I've never felt the need to explain jack to most people, because I understand that most people want to collaborate. Right. It's a matter of being a player, being a complete spectator. Exactly. Let me tell you the truth. I would argue most writers want their readers on the bench. Mm -hmm. That's the truth of it. I would argue most readers are accustomed to being on the bench. They're not accustomed to being asked to participate fully, fully, in a way that I think really brings out the richness of reading. And I'm way more interested in that than I am of any other thing. Being alive. The Mm. feeling of being alive
1: when you're reading it, as opposed to it just being an object that you're consuming.
0: And that I'm a minor part of this. This has been my problem with even the identity of being a writer. You know, I will go to a place where people are expecting me and they'll give applause. And I keep thinking, yeah, I hope you're applauding yourself because I'm just an excuse for y'all. To shine. It's really true. I am the least of what makes a book brilliant as it should be. It is readers that make any book brilliant. Right. And that's why so many books, it takes a while for them to find their readership. They've written a book that will only respond to the future. And if you have to actually really believe that deeply, not just as something you say in an interview, not something you just trot out because you're trying to grab some humble points, you actually, that has to be an absolute operational logic. If you don't feel that in your soul, it will never be reflected in the books. Never. You cannot falsify that. And it's the same way you can't falsify sympathy. That shit shows up. If you have no sympathy, that shows up in a book. I think that that was probably the best thing I did during my apprenticeship as a writer is make that decision when I was first building the tools to be a writer is that I come in number three readers one and two and now let's do some work yeah and that helps and
1: that approach obviously follows from adult literature to children's literature did you have to modify it or tweak it in any way hugely because it does seem that the space that you allow a kid as a reader to in has to be a little bit different than
0: the space that you allow a adult to play. Hugely. The thing is, is that you want to create, at least this is how I figured out, is that you want to create sort of multiple games, right? That there is a very simple, straightforward Pong in here. For those of you young enough to remember Pong, a simple video game, yeah? <laughs> There's a very simple video game in here that you can play. You can just strap yourself into this book, you collaborate a little bit, and you're out. But... You could begin to understand that there are multiple games happening here. The older or perhaps a more sophisticated or more interested reader can then begin to understand that, hey, wait a minute. This book is also playing a game with children's book where the folks that are giving Lola the initial stories are giving her traditional children's book literature, which is like, oh, look, this is funny, this is whimsical, this is all innocent. But then there's a second children's book that is growing inside of this innocent children's book. You could begin to understand that game of how this book is, in fact, not only a commentary on children's book, but an operation manual on what would be a real interesting way to hack traditional children's literature. That's there for folks who want to play that game, right. but you don't need to. I have to say, as a you know, as a white dad of two little white kids,
1: having space in the book where it was up to me as a parent, because my kids are a little, you know, they're four and six, so they're a little young. Yeah, think. they're young. But for me, myself, to go through that journey of discovery of, who is this monster? What was this? What was this hurricane? All these things... I got to go along with them, as opposed to a book being presented as a neat little finished package with a neat moral and a neat story, and it's complete when you close the cover.
0: Well, one hopes. These things for me are so difficult. I'm so I'm so lame, a writer, that if I don't eh. have—believe me, if I don't have multiple levels in a book— it wouldn't have been worth the amount of time that it took me. It took me forever. So I'm always thinking, you know, I'm like that cat who's building a restaurant. And you're like, well, it's taken me six years to do the build out. I might as well have a bar. I might as well have a drive-through. I might as well have a make-it-yourself salad bar. You know, by the time the process is done, I've added as much shit as I Omelet can. Hot station. In a hot minute. <laughs> what was the impetus to write a kid's book? Those, those godchildren. Yeah. You know, I mean, the thing is, as you know, is if you tell godchildren that you're a writer, they're like, where's my book? Yes. Where's my book? Yeah. You know, because they're coming home writing books for their parents all day long. And so they're like, yo, where is my book? Yeah. And, uh, yo, that that's never stopped for me.
1: They're the hardest, most task-driving editors
0: you've ever God, had. My God, that clamor. It's <laughs> like these... And you're like, where's my advance? Not even. I'm like, where's my inspiration? I yeah. suck at getting inspiration. Because Lola is such a big
1: character in... Oscar wow and then Lola shows up here and because the timeline's so interwoven in this one it does make me feel that Lola is the same character from Oscar into Island Born I don't know if that's my own no
0: it's meant to be it's sort of meant to be in a strange other universe I always think that the person who Lola the real Dominican person who Lola is extracted from from my life you know my work is highly fictional but it takes elements from my life when you're in a serious relationship with somebody for many, many years, the possibility of children come out, you talk about children, and you talk about what you think they may be like. I always think the Lola in Island Born is the daughter that me and this ex never had, but we dreamed of having.
1: Does she know that? Doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> I think one of the things that I wanted to touch on is the idea of the
1: diaspora and the idea of childhood trauma and kind of societal trauma, mm. which is basically the story of the Dominican yeah. Republic. And how Lola deals with it. She doesn't have any access to it, right, off the bat. That's kind of like her journey is gaining some sort of mitigated access to what happened. Like your godchildren, for instance, they don't remember, no, Trujillo. They don't have that in their blood. Although, as you make clear in your other work, that's something that's generational and passed down in mystic but very concrete
0: ways. Yeah. I mean, but think about Islandborn. Here's what Lola... Has been living with is that she's actually been living with the victims and the refugees of the monsters all along. Ultimately, all along, these discordant notes about the island had been present. I would not believe that the first time that she heard something discordant about the island and the history of the island was when that barber spoke. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I think it's the first time she was asked to pay attention. Mm -hmm. It's the first time she's focused. She's got her hands up to her temples. She's channeling. And one listens and hears quite different when one has intentionality. And what I think happens in this book is that Lola, in fact... Has a grandmother, an abuela she loves to death, but is unable to recognize fully what her grandmother, her presence is telling her, that her grandmother is a story that she doesn't have the key to unlock until she goes through this journey. You can't read the grandmother's encouragement of Lola in this story without realizing at the end that Part of that encouragement is the grandmother trying to become fully present to her little granddaughter, yeah. and that's important. It's very important. And Mr. Meer, oh, big time. Who I think, for me,
1: I feel a little silly saying he's like the most haunting character in the book because it's a beautiful children's book. But it is there's something so beautiful and sad about him working on his you know his projects in the he's like the super. And I know that. Basement apartment. You know, I've been in those basement apartments. And with this framed picture of Salcedo, the town of the resistance, I guess. And this whole backstory. And then this is what he is in the north. And this is what he is to Lola. Yeah. Just a guy with a broom. And then she finds out that he's much more.
0: Yeah. I think this is about our education for all of us. We're taught that we should look at someone who is picking up the garbage in this office right here, and think of them as a janitor. But that's only because we're asked to view the world through the most savage lens. The truth of it is, is these folks who are picking up the garbage around here are like the folks that made me possible. They viewed through a different lens, are the great heroes of our world, the great monster slayers of our world. And Lola, who has this wonderful family, is not even aware of this heritage, because she thinks of her grandmother as just abuela, and she thinks of Mr. Mir as just the super, and she doesn't understand that, taken from a different angle, an angle that isn't just imaginary, an angle that, in fact, incorporates all that is hidden and all the secret stories. These people are titans.
1: Normally, when celebrities write children's books, I feel like how voiceover actors feel when Morgan Freeman takes all their roles. He does. Yeah, he does. He does. But I think one of the things that I love most about Islandborn is you deal with the same issues and with the same philosophy of looking at people through multiple angles that you do in your adult literature in Island Born in a way that's appropriate for kids in, in the sense that you're talking about trauma without traumatizing them, but you still have that same you are who you are in your novels, you are who you are in Island Born. I think as a parent who wants to share that vision of people being Titans, even if you see them through
0: one lens, it's a wonderful chance. Well, you know, ultimately, what's the problem is that the reason why a story that is passed on will leave a child feeling emotionally and psychically impoverished is that if you deposit a story in a child that's done, that there's no place for that child in that story. Suffering X happened. Hold that. This terror was endured. Why don't you hold that for a second? But the thing is, is that none of these stories are done. None of these stories are really over and i think folks like history as this kind of contained already judged prepackaged finitude you know that it's just it's just complete it's discreet. and i think that the way that you can leave someone feeling empowered in a story is to understand that this thing isn't done this thing isn't in a museum there's a role for you to play even if it's just in the remembering and recognition and that's where people feel empowered they're like wow I can jump in this plane. It's just not a plane that just gets dumped on me. And I could fly this thing around and take it somewhere where it hasn't been before. And Lola takes this story of a monster. It could just be something you just deposit as a kid, as of kind of an ethnic or cultural or racial or political celebration. And she's like, there's a place for me in this story. And we see at the end, like Lola imagines in the final pages, her Interaction with the monster? What would she do? And I think that that's important. That empowers people. If history is just something dead that we drape you over, bleeding, rotting, stinking skins that you have to wear every now and then for a holiday, there's a reason why no one wants to have anything to do with history. If history is something alive where you can be a hero in it, that's quite different. There's space. Mm. Always space. Juno, mm. thank
1: you for taking the time no, to talk. I appreciate today. it. Thank you so much. You know, as I'm paging through Islandborn, I realize that most of the characters, in fact, all of the characters are people of color. That's a rarity when it comes to children's literature. And something when I was reading the book to my two sons, I was very aware of. it got me thinking about race. When and how is the appropriate way to talk to children about it? When do they become aware of race? Much of Juno's work, especially for adults, explores these subtle gradations of race and color, which are... Evident in all societies, but he's talking about, you know, Dominican society. So I wanted to get the opinion of Josh Krish, our science editor, on race and when kids first become aware of it. I know you're steaming with jealousy because you are a huge Juno Diaz fan. The biggest. I had the privilege of speaking with him.
2: Uh, why didn't you invite me? You always invite me late. It's a small studio and it would have been awkward. (laughs) Uh, No, it wouldn't. He would have felt right at home. Mm. Um... (laughs) So the reason Juno
1: is on the podcast is because he's Juno Diaz, but he's not a father, but he did write a kid's book, which kind of brought him here, called Island Born. Across his oeuvre for adults and children, I think one of Juno Diaz's main preoccupations is race, how it manifests and how it affects everyone, the discriminated against and the discriminator. The way it manifests in Island Born, his children's book, is in the diversity of characters. And it manifests beautifully. I think that's why it resonates so widely. Yeah, I can't wait to take a look at it. We've talked before about how to raise non-racist children, how to avoid raising racist children. It's definitely a good idea. And how much of it's nature versus nurture. Can that be mitigated? I want to dig into the science behind racism in children and how to combat it. I have a hunch that more books like Island Born help, that they're not just for Dominican
2: kids, that they're not just for people of color who are children, that they're for all of us. Sure. Actual racism, we don't see in very young children. They don't hate people. They don't really hate anything. They don't necessarily have the brain power to hate yet. You don't see a real ethnicity bias until around age three. And in most children, that peaks at around age eight. And then hopefully after that peak, it kind of declines into a less racist or only implicitly, not explicitly racist child. That's kind of the progression of racism in the average White kid living in a white neighborhood. You're saying that explicit racism peaks at age eight. Yeah. And then after that, it
1: sinks into implicit racism.
2: Right. Which is what the average person has. The average person has a fair amount of implicit racism. Implicit racism doesn't mean that you would make any decision based on your racism or that you would exclude somebody or not give them the job. But it means somewhere in the back of your head, you think that your race is better than the other races. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people have that to some degree. Studies have shown that the average person, if you really pick at their brains, has a certain preference for their own race over other races. But we've buckled down on that. We've put it in Inside ourselves, And we don't let it show out in public, mainly because society has taught us, at least the society that we live in now, has taught us that it's very, very bad to be racist. So the average kid has no awareness of this at age three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The child is overtly racist. We'll say things like, look, mommy, that's a black person and maybe treat that person differently. They're very obvious about it and then around age eight or nine society starts telling them you maybe you should cool it if you feel people are different don't say anything about it and then for the average child unless they're being raised by like a nazi the average nine-year-old knows better than to say racist things
1: to push back a little bit is a five-year-old saying look at that person daddy he's black racist is that just noticing difference isn't it somehow more insidious to teach them that noticing difference? is wrong?
2: We may want to pick a different example. It's an entirely different question, obviously. I was just pointing out that children tend to uh, tend to say what comes to mind immediately. You can make it much more racist. Look at that dirty, insert race. In the study that I saw, the N-word was what was used, is that there were psychologists who were giving case reports of kids who used the N-word to describe their friends who were black. These are examples of explicit racism. What I'm, is uh, going uh, on? I'm, this really
1: goes against kind of what I
2: would imagine. Yeah, there are a good number of kids who display explicit racism in school who will say racist things to other kids. And they tend to stop doing that once society tells them to stop. But that doesn't mean they stop being racist. It just means they stop saying racist things.
1: Are we talking about like 98% of three to five year olds studied said some racist shit in kindergarten? Or is it like 50% did? And then by the time they were eight, only 20% did. I mean, are we talking about the preponderance?
2: What they'll do is they'll collect a sample of 100 kids who were brought to the principal's office for using the N-word and then they'll study them.
1: Oh, that's a terrible...
2: It's actually really useful because you want to know why they're saying it. Are they saying it because their parents are racist? Or are they saying it because they all watch the same TV show?
1: Yeah, but that doesn't give any indication no. of how yeah. widespread it is.
2: We don't know how many kids have explicit racism. We know a lot more about population-level implicit racism. Implicit racism is much more interesting to scientists. This is children who aren't racist necessarily, certainly not in an explicit way, but they do prefer their own race. And when asked, what do you think of other races? They don't say anything negative. But when asked, would you rather be friends with this kid or that kid? And one kid is white and one kid is black. The white kid will pick the white kid. That's implicit racism. They don't say it's because of race. And if you were to ask a 10 year old, did you pick this kid because he's white? They'd be horrified. Of course not. I picked him because he looks friendly, which is somehow worse. This is implicit racism. Infants show implicit racism. You can call it an ethnicity preference if you like. For example, in 2008, very famous study, they took 64 Caucasian three month olds. They certainly are not racist at three months of age. And they showed each child a Caucasian face alongside a second face. That second face was either Middle Eastern, Asian or African. They found that the children, three-month-olds, they were all white kids, that these three-month-olds would stare at the Caucasian face for almost the entire time, and that their eyes never even looked at the other race face. They weren't seen. That's right. They completely erased them. There's a, there's a degree of erasure here. What's much more likely than that this is a racial finding is that small children tend to like faces that they associate with their parents' faces. These are white kids with white parents. That white person looked more like their parents. So they have a preference for somebody who looks like mom and dad, and if you're a white kid odds are looking like mom and dad means a white person
1: what's the role of parents in trying to raise non-racist
2: children parents have a very real responsibility to make sure that their children see them doing things that demonstrate that they're not racist Which doesn't mean walking around with a t-shirt that says, I'm not a racist. It means modeling the behavior.
1: What about a tote bag that says, I'm not a racist? Tote bag
2: wouldn't work either. You got to model the behavior. Um. One way to model such behavior in your speech is simply to make sure that you stop using us, them expressions. Us, them expressions are very harmful. Don't refer to other races as them and your race as us. Talk about people as being part of a global community. Children sense when you call somebody else them, when you other somebody in your speech. Children pick up on that. As a matter of fact, studies have shown that children pick up on your implicit biases all the time. Sometimes this can cause them even to display explicit biases. Why are you looking at me funny? I thought it was the other way around. It works every direction. Oh, okay. Yeah, it works every direction. There's a prejudice scale- 20 statements about other cultures that you can administer to any adult and through this prejudice scale and how they answer these questions you can figure out what their levels of implicit bias and explicit bias are. Some of these questions are like respond to the following statement immigrants take our jobs strongly agree strongly disagree. Another one that's on there is immigrants transmit values not required in our country strongly agree strongly disagree. Parents who tend (sighs) to score particularly yeah it's not great. Parents who tend to score particularly high on the prejudice scale are overwhelmingly more likely to have children who display implicit and explicit bias. For a child, you can't give them the survey. They won't know what to do with it. You have a six-year-old, so your six-year-old wouldn't know what to answer on a survey like this. But they did take a group of six-year-olds whose parents had answered this survey, and they showed them pictures of six different kids from different ethnic groups and asked them, who would you like to go on a play date on? Or if you could only be one of these kids, which one of these kids would you be? And children who chose their own race consistently across all of these experiments invariably had parents who scored poorly on the prejudice scale what this tells us in less scientific terms is that if you are biased deep down and if you feel a certain way about other people your children are going to pick up on it and they're not just going to pick up on it in an implicit way that they're going to harbor negative thoughts about other races they might even make decisions about other races based on the implicit behavior that you have you're walking around the house using us-them statements, making sure to only watch TV shows that have actors that are your race. Well, the actor
1: thing I think is interesting because you can very easily default into only watching a non-diverse television show. W- reading books with white kids as a characters. Like that's part of the system, which if I'm not wrong, kids don't pick up on whether it's explicit or explicit, whether you're choosing a television show because it's only white kids or choosing a television show and it only has white characters. Right? Yeah. They digest that in the same way, which is why a book like this, why having diverse characters and having diversity being part of the fabric of life seems so important as a parent and why it's just as important to work at it. For me, it needs to be a conscious decision because such is the state of the world that the default isn't that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a shame that it has to be conscious, but your children, if you, want, if you want Achilles to grow up not to be racist, he has to see that dad has friends of different races, that dad watches shows that have black people in them as the stars reads him books that have, yeah, white kids, but also kids from every other race that have a good ethnic breakdown of different groups, and that dad enjoys foods from different cultures and doesn't insult those cultures while he's eating their foods. That happens? Oh, yeah. I had a grandfather who uh, had some very choice words to describe ethnic dishes. Which he still ordered. (laughs) Right. And it definitely didn't do wonders to my implicit racism. But we have to model this behavior at home. Say I'm not comfortable
1: having that conversation with Achilles. To be honest, I don't think that if I sat him down and I was like, this is what racism is. Don't be it. Don't be a racist.
2: That would not be helpful for him. No, and studies suggest you're right. It would not be helpful. How do I broach the subject? Needs to be dialogue, and needs to be interactive dialogue, almost, almost initiated by Achilles. So how do you make Achilles start talking about race? It's probably not something that he's thinking about right now. And the answer is, you pick something going on in the news, or pick something that he's seeing on TV, or Diaz's book that's in front of him, and ask him two basic questions. What do you think about what is happening? And how does it make you feel? That's what do you think about what's happening? And how does it make you feel? Those two questions are relatively open-ended. They prompt the child to start talking about what's happening in the scene. So in the book, for example, talking about what's happening on the page. So now you have an engaged reader, which is never a bad thing. And how it makes you feel... You're going to find that those feelings frequently end up touching on something that can launch you into a discussion about race. For example, in Diaz's book, the dictator Trujillo, who was a dictator who terrorized the Dominican Republic, is depicted in the book as a black monster. If you were to stop at that page with Achilles and say, you see this black monster, it symbolizes a very bad person who hurt a lot of people in a certain country. What do you think about what's happening on this page? And how does it make you feel to think that these people were hurt by this black monster? Why do you keep on emphasizing the black part of it? I, because it's a black monster. I was just describing it. It's a monster. It's a bat. A bat. Oh, that helps more. And you stop right there and you ask Achilles, what do you think about what's happening? He's probably going to give you a pretty incisive answer. It looks like a monster's terrorizing children. Incisive, Achilles. And how does that make you feel? And if Achilles says something like, I don't know these kids don't look like me, I guess that couldn't happen to me. That's a great place to launch into a discussion about how there's a globalism and an idea this could happen to anybody. And if Achilles says, this looks like it's happening in an island somewhere, maybe it doesn't affect people living in cities, that might be a great time to explain to Achilles that people who live on islands and people who live in cities both have monsters they have to deal with. It's a launching point for a discussion that Achilles can initiate using what's happening on the page.
1: It seems like as a dad, it's like, I want to be able to have conversations about race, and I want to be able to have Achilles acknowledge and appreciate difference, but I do also often feel it's difficult to have a conversation saying, well, this person's black, or this person's brown, or this person's white, and not feel nervous about what you're inculcating in them by noticing and pointing out that difference.
2: Based on my own parenting. I think that if you highlight differences and you honestly don't feel any implicit bias in those differences, it's not going to translate that way. The studies suggest that a parent that doesn't have implicit bias doesn't transmit it. There's no fear of you transmitting racism if you've gotten it out of your system. How many of us have really gotten it out of our system? But you know, that's a lifelong pursuit to truly understand that all people are equal and need to be treated equally, but also that they are essentially equal. Uh, All parenting goes back to know thyself. Yeah, and and improve thyself, which is so much harder. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, thank you for stopping by. Thanks.
1: That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to The Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. Today's episode was executive produced by Sandy Smallins and engineered by Dave Savage. Theme music is by Kyle Forster, with a little help from my son, Augie here in Stein. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a high five, rating, and subscribe on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for me. Hey, kids, got anything to say?
2: Um, what do robots squad eat nuts? <laughs>